summer's here and people are out of town. So as it is increasingly tricky to match schedules with guests in this period, I thought of doing one or more recap slash best of what we've got so far episodes. This might also be useful because, although we did make short statement of intent for this podcast in the very first episode, for anyone listening in at any random point in time, it might be a bit confusing why we cover topics as varied as we do. And it might still be confusing afterwards, but hey, at least we tried. So why do you see in this list everything from episodes on the Romanian healthcare system to stories about 19th century economic bubbles and railway scandals, to proto-fascist writers and politicians to book reviews? Well, because this project is inspired by and tries to mimic the messy exuberance of long talks with good friends. We're not historians or politicos, and although some episodes are more research-heavy than others, the point is not to tell you what's what, we're all busy with day jobs, we don't have the time or the brains, frankly, to be thought leaders, but we do like to make people curious about things and how apparently arcane topics are often connected to our daily grind. And talking about that daily grind, Here's me and Elisa discussing similarities between present workplace conditions at Amazon and abusive practices in the 19th century meatpacking industry in the US. There are plenty of reports about how machines are used to set the pace for human workers. So let me just briefly quote from an article in the Times. Technology has enabled employers to enforce a work pace with no rooms for inefficiency, squeezing every ounce of downtime out of workers' days. After I completed a task, the scan gun not only immediately gave me a new one, but also started counting down the seconds I had left to do it. Let's compare and contrast it (laughs) with how it was done back in the days. Since the nature of assembly line work meant that if one party goes faster, everyone else needs to pick up their pace to match them, employers would select workers, pay them higher wages, and secure their employment if they would intentionally drive their workmates harder through this method. Bootlickers, you mean. Yeah. Uh, And in turn, that drove a wedge between workers, uh, as these better paid workers would be called the butcher aristocracy. I just see when you say the butcher aristocracy, I immediately think of people just wearing meat, fancy meat dresses like, you know, Gaga did, except Marie Antoinette style. You know, you just got ribbons of guts and like uh, shoes made out of bones. I don't know. Maybe I've been listening to too much last podcast on the left again. (laughs) So uh, that's uh, not all because management would also keep statistics on production line output and uh, overseers who slipped could lose their jobs. This allowed management to indirectly encourage foremen to use tactics that they did not want to explicitly support because, you know, we don't want to necessarily look like assholes, but we will do the asshole-ish things. According to one retired foreman, he was always trying to cut wages. Some of the foremen got a commission on all expenses they could save below a certain point. So, you know, what would a workplace be without scabs, bootlickers, or useful idiots? Not a workplace. So, um, the book also highlights how little regard employers had for their workers' health or time. Um, I would say and time. Uh, well, yeah. 
because yeah. they they were definitely their attitude was definitely a porque no los dos like I yeah you don't care about your time your health your family your nothing you just kill more cows my dude just kill more cows they would uh, squeeze as much as well they would they still do <laughs> as much as they could out of work while they were still young and in reasonably good health. With those broken by the heavy work then confined to swelling the ranks of desperate job seekers that only drove wages down across the board. Which, you know, talking about retirement and about uh, many people that we know who are retired but also work. Yeah. Yeah. And and Amazon's uh, silver camper workers, mm. the all of the li- retirees that they hire, retirees who are living on on the poverty line or below it, and the Walmart greeters. Exactly. And yeah, they uh, just they just so love to work. They just cannot stop. Yeah, I mean, I, nobody's saying don't give old people jobs. Obviously, that's not what we're saying. What we're saying here is that you need to give proper conditions. And uh, what you mentioned earlier, the the quote from the New York Times article, that kind of shit about you having a scanner gun that counts down the seconds. That doesn't care if you're 18 or 76. And I think a lot of people totally underestimate how many literally tens of thousands of senior citizens work in Amazon warehouses. Like, think of your grandfather and all of their health issues that they have. Having to walk tens of kilometers of day, uh, every day during their shifts and, and the, the notorious lack of breaks and all those things. This is not, not a, none of this is okay. And none of this has been okay ever, but we're supposed to be all, you know, up in arms about how Jeffrey is so amazing. I'm, it's for everybody that doesn't know me, I'm gonna refer to Bezos as Jeffrey because apparently he doesn't necessarily like it that much. Plus he's trying to push the whole, I'm Jeff because I'm cool. No, you're not, man, no. you're not. You're you're what, if the when the aliens come, I, I feel like when the aliens will arrive and they're gonna try to pretend to be humans, that's what Jeffrey, that's Jeffrey. Like, he looks like an alien being bad at pretending to be human. And you know what? I. I'm not into making fun of people's, you know, things that they can't control, like the way they look and all that stuff, but it's Jeffrey. He can take it. I'm definitely punching up. He's cackling in all of his billions. Like, he bought himself an own space program, his own space program. So, like, suck it, Jeffrey. Suck it. Make you choke on your penis-shaped rocket. You know he kisses those things at night. You know he just walks out and just, like you know, starts touching the rockets and, like, speaking to it like Gollum, like, My precious! Don't put these images into my head. Well, you put Jeffrey's meat in my head, so... I... Okay. (laughs) So... (laughs) Um, Okay, so getting back to this, workers were so desperate, well, again, past tense, but, you know... Still are, still are. Even when they had jobs, they often had to wait without pay if there were no animals to slaughter. Workers would be fired if they did not show up at a specified time before 9 in the morning, but then they might wait unpaid until 10 or 11 for shipment. Amazon has proudly picked up this ancient legacy of douchebaggery by shaving off any minute not deemed on task from its workers' wages. And uh, I'll quote... uh, a former Amazon employee. At least I hope they're a former Amazon employee. At my warehouse, you were expected to be off task for only 18 minutes per shift. Like, at least round it up. Like, 18 minutes. 
Um, mine was 6.30 a.m. to 6 p.m., which included using the bathroom, getting a drink of water, or just walking slower than the algorithm dictated. I have a theory also regarding this, because I feel like 18 minutes per shift, and it's like, what, an almost 12-hour shift? My theory is, is that this is exactly the time that Jeffrey spends at the bathroom over a 12-hour period. Like, he, he's clocked his shits, all of his shits, you know? He's done the math. Another uh, move uh, Amazon could be said to have stolen from these disgusting predecessors is to essentially expand operations indefinitely, thus uh, increasing their control over the entire process of production and distribution. Combining the roles of producer, buyer, packager, distributor, and retailer with, uh, within one firm allowed these companies, calling them rights, to take advantage of economies of scale that they then translated into reasonable prices for their happy consumers. But they're not reasonable prices. This is my issue, okay? So, like, I like to save money. I don't have a lot of it. <laughs> Neither of us do. But they're not reasonable prices if that price that you pay at the store can only be achieved at the cost of thousands and tens of thousands and millions of workers' health, be that physical, mental, work-life balance, families, pensions. That is not a reasonable price. That is exploitative. Your tiny woman brain does not understand the fact that consumers and workers are just like two groups neatly separated that never overlay or interact. There's no overlay. Yeah, I got bullshit on that. Yes, you fail to see the logic of the system. You know, like I said, your tiny woman brain just. You're so lucky you're not in the same room with me right now. (laughs) I would be like full claws out at you right now. (laughs) But no, 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 I get it. I get it. We want the cheapest price. We want to save money. Nobody, you know, wages aren't keeping up with inflation. All that jazz, you know, socialist noises all around. But it's not a fair price. That's, that's yeah. one of my, my, my biggest pet peeves when it comes to the economic systems that we live in, that it's a fair price is considered the lowest price, but it's not. That's why we are in, you know, freaking climate change. That's why we have tens of millions, hundreds of millions of workers co- totally overexploited because it's not a fair price. If you only get, again, let me say this again, if the only way to get that price is at the cost of fucking up ecosystems, displacing peoples, be those people's indigenous people or just poor people. I mean, we know what the meat industry does to this day when it comes to uh, placing factories uh, and processing plants and all those uh, everything related to it, basically that is blue collar in mostly communities of color. Like this, no, no, that is not a fair price. A fair price is a price that does not come at the cost of other people's health and the health of the planet, which in fact is also the health of us. But again, I'm my apparently tiny woman braiding again. And I can already hear the whole, well, if you don't like your job, then go get another one crowd. And first of all, choke on a bag of dicks. And then we'll catch you in a couple more minutes for more choking on bags of dicks for all of you. Just get another job. Ugh, people. Well, that was nice, wasn't it? Or perhaps you're not that keen on 19th century and contemporary workplace drama. Well, then, um, let me see. Oh, I know. 
Could I uh, maybe interest you in a conversation about the depiction of relationships in movies and TV series and why me and Irina think they are so, so, so bad? I'm just a girl sitting here asking why are writers so averse to writing healthy, interesting relationship? I feel like it's their kryptonite. The beginning is always great, like out of this world great, but once they get there, it's like they have no idea what to do, so they immediately destroy the relationship. Is it really nothing of interest in how people navigate a relationship that these people could write about? I think uh, for all the sort of uh, sneering uh, telenovelas, somehow Mm -hmm. many, many, many movie relationships just take on the telenovela approach to relationships. Yes, yes, exactly. You have the build-up, so they get to know each other and uh, everything's great. And then they never do anything else but like... (gasps) you know it's like (laughs) it's something very shocking something that just uh, you know there's never room for them to discuss things and like um, to figure things out and just okay let's you know this is very unexpected and clearly a shocker but like let's talk things over no it's like no i never want to see you again and then you know this usually takes place like um at the half point of the show and then the other half is spent trying to mend the relationship because it's usually yeah. they, they yeah, usually yes. get back uh with the person they were supposed to be with from the get-go yeah mm-hmm. uh but like and and this in tv shows sometimes as you said like there's like a mix-up so they hook up with someone else or whatever but it's like it's still basically the telenovela approach where you have this uh, artificial conflict that just turns into either a shouting match or like a very prolonged pouting session where <laughs> where none of them wants to talk things yeah, out. Yeah, and this in- extremely contrived miscommunication things where like, yeah, no, nobody would misunderstand that, but somehow it happened. So, you know... I, mm-hmm. I I keep yeah. telling myself when, when I watch this that, you know, there is such a thing as outside drama, seriously. Or, you know, even inside drama that is not necessarily somebody having a threesome. And there are character flaws and there are incompatibilities uh, even between people who love each other. Um, you know, and there is like this... Some like, people are... like some people like uh, cow's milk, some people like almond milk. Yeah, sure. <laughs> and, and, they have, uh, and they have a limited budget. You have to pick one. <laughs> and, um, you know, also there is this, uh, like, actual compelling idea where, you know, like, two people love each other, but somehow uh, love is not enough. But no, always uh, the, the, the go-to thing uh, is like, well, well, let's just fuck someone else every other episode and you know be epically in love with one person this episode and with the other in the next episode until the writers decide who should win this lovely war and then proceed towards character assassination because you know what other way to end the love triangle you cannot just end it because you don't just like one of the two people no you just have to screw over one of the characters with extremely lazy bad writing who wants this like I I sit there and I watch it and I wonder, like, who wants this? Who watches a genre show and actually wants a love portrayed at the beginning as epic, cosmic? And uh, who wants it to see that that crumble in three minutes? I mean, what is the deal in all of these shows? Like, aliens are real, werewolves, you know, sexually roam the earth. 
vampires can have hard-ons without a functional heart and, you know, functional blood flow. But, you know, when we draw the line of stuff that is actually possible, we draw it at an enduring relationship with good writing. Because, seriously, even make-believe has limits. Like, what the hell? I'm actually, I'm actually curious about your opinion uh, on uh, what I feel like is the other big offender, mm. uh, whereby writers uh, depict couples who are like not at the beginning of their relationship or at a very poignant crisis point. Uh, mm-hmm. So they are in a long-term relationship indeed, uh, and they aren't cheating or uh, thinking about threesomes, uh, but this comes at the cost of them being almost asexual. Nothing wrong mm-hmm. with them, mm-hmm. you know, with anyone being asexual, but like uh, when it's just sort of pictured as a natural uh, evolution and consequence, you know, of, uh, of having being a in a long-term relationship. relationship. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, people just being very blasé about uh, both their sex life and uh, about basically them being together and mm-hmm. living together. They're more annoyed with each other than anything else. And if there ever was any affection between them, uh, mm-hmm. by the time we sort of experience their story, it's long gone. So, you know, yeah. there's no nothing there. It's like they just seem to be begrudgingly together rather than because they've uh, sort of come to uh, better understand what it is they like about each other and what they can provide for one another. Or, you know, those movies um, in which... Oh my god, this one annoys me as well. Uh, so, uh, you know those movies in which the spouse, uh, uh, one of the spouses uh, realizes there's something missing in their relationship? Mm-hmm. Um, although they usually just stick to the, uh, you know, oh, our sex life is not as good as it used to be. Okay. Thing. And then uh, they either have like a sexual reawakening, uh, like the dad or husband in uh, American mm-hmm. Beauty, or <laughs> the wife. Uh, is concocting some oddball scheme, like, uh, say, hiring a prostitute uh, to lure her husband into a scenario where she tests if he would cheat on her. And thus she learns about his desires. And it, it's all sometimes portrayed as some sort of petit bourgeois sexual frustration mm-hmm. slash king thing. Mm-hmm. I don't know. For, uh, it's weird. You're grown ass people and you cannot have an honest and frank conversation about this. You know, or at the very least, as viewers, I think we could get a story yeah. in which the drama is the tension that is caused by their difficulty in discussing these things and sorting their lives out, yeah. right? Because, like, you can make um, you don't have to you don't have to portray positive things or good people or mature people, but the way that you present those things can actually. Uh, reveal uh, things that we don't talk about as of often. Of course, of course. Like, that's the whole point of movies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so you know, you, you, we, we can't have that, no. right? So, no, instead we have, like, Fanny Ordon and uh, in Natalie or uh, Julianne Moore in Chloe uh, hiring the hookers to spy on their husband. And then, you know, they're interviewing the hooker, like, what did you do to him and did, did he like it? It's like... Bitch, ask your husband. Like, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I, I have a hooker on my speed dial. Every time I feel like I don't know something about my husband, that's my go-to move, you know? <laughs> yeah. Okay, so, you know. I, I, I am frankly offended that I am not on speed dial, but the hooker is. <laughs> 
So maybe you've just witnessed the writers messing up yet another relationship that you felt invested in and made the executive decision to reach for a chocolate bar as a consolation prize. Maybe you're British, so that bar of chocolate is Cadbury. And as you take a ravenous bite of its unctuous body, you can't stop thinking to yourself, damn, this used to be so much better when I was a kid. What happened? And what does one of the oldest Romanian chocolate factories have to do with it? Between 2005 and 2008, uh, when plans were um, set in motion to change the way business was done in craft uh, foods, an initiative titled Organizing for Growth began to circulate. Its aim was to dismantle the existing organizational matrix and replace it with a decentralized structure with more direct lines of responsibility. Which just means that we're <laughs> Jesus take the wheel. <laughs> uh, I mean, uh, just to sort of uh, put this move into context, I, I guess one of the main reasons why they needed to do this whole rehashing was because, after all, craft had come about following heaps and heaps of mergers. So, uh, you know, you had Philip Morris bought General Foods in 1985, then bought Kraft in 1988, Oscar Mayer, Nabisco, and J Jakob Suchard in Europe. Like, these were all sort of mergers, and uh, I'm sure all were above the board and scandal-free. I mean, I, I think uh, by the time uh, Philip Morris bought Jakob Suchard, I think that was still to date the largest acquisition uh, made by a foreign investor in, in Switzerland, to, you know, of a Swiss company. Mm -hmm. And they, they were on this acquisition spree all over Europe and Eastern Europe especially. I'm, I'm not sure if they went into Russia, but they definitely hit our neighbors. <laughs> 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 definitely Ukraine was... Ukraine in the membrane. <laughs> that is, yes. <laughs> I must agree. <laughs> But yeah, I'm guessing that like, after so many mergers, it, it was difficult to... Mm -hmm. Yeah, to... sure, sure, sure. It gets messy and nobody wants to not sure, be the I... boss anymore. Absolutely, and, yeah. but it's not like... This This is just this was, this was is just double speak for... Um... <laughs> I think we're okay, a bit overextended here. Yeah, we yeah. don't really know what to do. Yeah. Halt. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, in general, mergers, I know... We, we both know mergers are just so great for, like, competitive environment, Absolutely. right? Absolutely. Yeah. Corporate was also aiming to fix another problem. Because, um, as you said, you know, they for, for, for a few years after the, I guess, the Iron Curtain went swoosh, they kept uh, buying, as you said, buying and merging and taking over stuff in, like, these here parts. Because um, it was relatively cheap, yes. Yeah, yeah, they but, really did buy things for cheap, including Poyana. Yeah. But, you know, by <laughs> the time we are in the mid noughties, mm -hmm. uh, these markets, uh, you know, they are quickly maturing and labor costs, although still lower, obviously, and to yeah. this day they are lower, you know, they were rising. And if there's one thing <laughs> corporate uh, uh, executives do not like is when, you know, it's still cheap, but it's not as cheap as it used to be. <laughs> and besides that, uh, rivals who had access to large emerging markets in China or India uh, just, uh, you know, had the much juicier bits 
and uh, Kraft sort of wanted a piece of that. Uh, by 2007, uh, Kraft uh, had set its sights on Cadbury. The UK-based uh, confectionery was the second largest at the time, and its performances during the uh, recession that was soon to come were due to its presence in, like I said, the sizable markets of India and in comes Irene Rosenfeld, who assumed the role of CEO at Kraft in 2007. She then proceeded to girl boss <laughs> really hard, developing a three-year turnaround plan designed to drive growth the way only a girl boss can, right? So, slave uh, labor? I... Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, Downsizing well, and slave labor, I'm guessing. I, I mean... <laughs> She had her own special mix, I guess. But uh, okay, we 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 branded and we marketed as something else. But that's what it is. Yes, still? okay, yeah, I mean, obviously, yeah. <laughs> and the 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 important thing to remember is that the Cadbury purchase was uh, part of that strategy. But there was a snag. Cadbury was not for sale. Oh, <laughs> but <Did> she steals. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like that's what she did. Okay. Well, you know, in the corporate world, no means yes, sure thing, provided you can gin up the necessary money. <laughs> so if corporations are people, I guess uh, it's really high time for a Me Too mo movement uh, in yeah. there. Right? Definitely. Yeah. So what happened was Kraft launched a hostile takeover bid. To no it's one. legal? <laughs> I mean, if it, if I mean, I understand, but yes. just what? Yes. What? Well, it, it, yeah, it sparked quite a bit of uh, controversy, as you can imagine. Uh, given the sheer size of the two businesses, um, and you know what the absorption of one into another would mean for basic competition on a market, the European Commission stepped in. European Commission and uh, uh, what it found was that Kraft dominated most markets in the EEA while the British and the Irish public's preference for homegrown brands such as Cadbury uh, assured its leading position in those markets. However, the Commission identified competition concerns within chocolate confectionery in some European countries in which like they would both have a majority presence should mm -hmm. they merge. Those two markets were uh, Poland and uh, Romania. Dum dum dum. <laughs> yeah, this is this is because yeah, this is population size and mostly population size. <laughs> like because yeah, uh, the document does not state specifically that uh, the EU Commission told them you know sell the Poyana Brasov uh, the Poyana uh, factory and then you are allowed to do this. No, but like they were shuffling around certain assets because once they would have acquired uh, Cadbury, Cadbury had taken over Candia and Excellent already on the Romanian chocolate mail. Yeah. Uh, market so they had to sort of okay so that we don't uh, get slapped with an anti-monopoly uh, yeah I think monopolization was obviously yeah. the issue in both Romania and Poland but not just there mm -hmm. but those were the big ones ah well chocolate isn't all that good for you anyways eh? this uh, this is fine right and uh, I can confidently conclude with the hope of having convinced you this is a fun and lighthearted show that will never remind you we live in a weird and stupid world. Oh heck. 
Well, anyway, in case any of these excerpts pique your interest, I've included links to each in order of their appearance in the episode description. If you're not already one of the gracious and lovely subscribers or followers of Totally Unrelated, maybe you might be persuaded to join the flock. No pressure, of course. Take your time, sample our offering, and if perchance a few episodes in you might find yourself thinking, gosh, I kind of like these silly cows talking about random stuff, you know what you have to do share, rate, like and subscribe on any platform of your choice. That's it for me today. Bye!